Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm going to assume you haven't listened to it because it's easier for me to... Just do it that way, uh, or have you? Have I you... have a vague awareness of it. I don't. I don't know. If I to it. <laughs> I'm aware enough. of what it is. I, th- I must have read the blurb because I feel like I know what it is. You've read the blurb, okay? Yeah. Is that do too you, much? No. Do you just do you just get invited on podcasts and go? I'll do that. Yeah, actually. <laughs> oh, you're not very selective with your podcasts. Okay, that's that's I'm not, nice. Yeah, I'm not so in demand that I've got any need to be. Okay, fair enough. I was in. Um, this is my second podcast of the week. Oh really? I recorded my first one in a plague village in North Derbyshire. What was the first one? What was it called? Like, do I, do I oh, know? it's not out yet. I don't, don't know what the name is. No, the podcast must be out. Or you, the first episode? I was episode two, but it has none of it's live. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's a slightly different vibe with this one, I reckon, because so normally I invite someone on who's like a TV commissioner, an agent, yeah. a producer who's been doing it 15, 20 years, or a comedian who's been going about the same amount of time. You are probably the youngest I've had on. Performer wise, oh, nice. yeah, I know. If that makes you feel any better about or worse, well, if it makes you feel any better, I've been performing for about eight or nine years. Yeah, yeah, but okay. that's that's still by a long chalk. Oh wow, All young, right. yeah. Okay, so yeah. Didn't you have Lata on? Can't be a massive. Oh no, wait, hang on, that's Lata. true. I didn't have Lata. No, but Lata, no, because Lata's. Oh no, wait, because I thought he'd been. I thought he started in sketch earlier than that, though. There can't be. He doesn't dwarf me, though, does he? No, I, do. I think he does for like three or four years, doesn't he? But right. that's, I'm not dwarfed by, oh, by right, far, okay. it's not three I or four, four years. four years is an extended period of time. Oh, Alright, fine, fine. Lata and you are the youngest people I've had All on. Alright, cool. Um, and, yeah, for good reason, I hope. Uh, so <laughs> what does uh, that mean? As in, as in I, pick, I pick good guests, is what <laughs> oh, I'm saying. Oh, yeah, a few. Okay. Sorry, what do you think nice. I was saying? Yeah, Jesus well, Christ. you said for good reason we don't get people like you on normally. <laughs> no, no, no. You twisted that into making me sound like a cunt. I just read it how it comes in, I just... You, okay, you're doing this. You're making it a weird vibe before we even start. I'm trying to make you comfy, and then it's just rapport. I'm just it's a back. It's like badinage. Oh, is this what we're doing? We're gonna yeah, we're gonna have it, a, we develop a friendship off the back of this. That's the long term plan. Is that the long term plan? Yeah, short term plan actually. Okay, I was gonna yeah. say because like what is there like a gap afterwards where I'm gonna hate you and then all of a sudden we'll yeah, make I, up and just aftercare. Yeah, well, okay. friendship doesn't have aftercare. French, it should. Yeah. 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 See? Yeah, definitely. The amount of emotional labour my friends are. Exactly. I'm the only friend you've got offering it, so. Well, then 
We're busy mates. Perfect. Hello and welcome to the Ask the Industry podcast episode 118. I'm comedian Simon Kane, and for those of you new to the show, this is the podcast where I interview the most influential people from the worlds of stand-up, comedy, radio and today, comedy club promotion. Sean Morley is a comedian, intelligent surrealist and comedy club promoter from Sheffield. He's inventor of the Glang Show and has almost single-handedly brought up a chunk of the Sheffield comedy scene. We talked about writing on stage, commodity weirdness, making a name for yourself before approaching the industry, and so much more. I learned a ton about this. I got in touch with Sean because a few friends of mine who came to see my show told me that I should definitely see his, and unfortunately I couldn't for a number of reasons this Edinburgh, and it was because I got so annoyed with the fact that a lot of shows were so rehearsed. Shows were really feeling like people were just talking at audiences, and I was trying to implement more not improvisation because there were jokes planned but it was more in the moment I really wanted to feel that connection with an audience that I feel whenever I'm writing jokes on stage and and some friends of mine redirected me to him and I looked him up and, and it is exactly what I was looking for in terms of somebody who's trying to do a similar thing and that's exciting to me also the fact that he's able to build up a scene uh, pretty much single-handedly and grow an empire so that he's able to gig more on his own terms which is very exciting from my perspective I've got a very big DIY mentality I don't know if you can tell that from this podcast and everything I ever have done ever but that that really was exciting to talk to and listen to from his point of view so I hope you get a lot out of this and I hope it inspires you to follow along his lines and start your own club night theme show comedy show try something different give give something give something a whirl right finish it listen to the whole thing and then give the show a whirl i'm currently uh, bouncing around the country i am doing a ton of previews i think there's 28 left and then I'm going to Edinburgh with a show called Every Room Becomes a Panic Room When You Overthink Enough. If you are going to be in the UK in the next couple of months or you're going to be in Edinburgh in August, please have a look in the show notes, see where I'm going to be performing and come buy a ticket. I would love to see you at a show. So that's my plug for my show and my plea for some ticket sales. If you're new here, please do remember to hit the subscribe button. If you're old here, please do remember to give us an honest, ideally positive review on iTunes. Five stars would be the best, and if not, a full star review that reads like a five star would be the dream. And either way, please do join the Facebook group. It's called RC Industry Podcast, and it's on Facebook, obviously. But for now, this is Sean Morley. So basically, <laughs> the podcast is about, uh, normally it's about how a comedian has built their audience, uh-huh. and how a producer or a TV commissioner, how they make stuff, mm-hmm. and why they're making stuff. And You know, like, why did that TV show get made, not this one? What were you after at that okay, time? Sure. That sort of thing. Um, you're on to talk about the glang. Okay. Talk about workshops. Okay. And talk about the style of comedy that you do. Yeah, sure. And f- cards on the table. The reason why I've got you on. Yeah. I got told about you in Edinburgh, and I didn't get a chance to come see you in Edinburgh, and I was quite yeah. annoyed about that. Um, basically, someone saw my show, mm-hmm. booked me for a spot somewhere, and I and I spent the entire because it's like a half two in the morning show or something stupid. I spent the entire show like moving the curtains going look this isn't even a fucking gig like why are we doing and then, and then there's like a video of me using the audience of stepping stones to get out the gig because I yeah. didn't want to touch the floor and stuff and someone and, and, and someone said oh, I thought you were going to come and just do 10 <laughs> from yeah. your show and I said I don't like doing my 10s from the show in spots yeah. because 
I find that boring and I find it cheating the audience because then they come and see it and they've seen it again and I don't like that. Yeah, so yeah. I like to improvise in those shows. And, I, and I'm, I'm struggling to find other people doing that up here because everyone seems to be doing their best 10 at these. Yeah, and sure. it's annoying me. And he said, oh, Sean isn't doing that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, who was this? Who, who, who was the person? I can't remember and it's right, bugging okay. me. Genuinely, I, I, I would tell you if I could remember it was. I remember the gig, I remember the lineup. I was looking it up on the Ed Fringe website earlier but they've taken yeah. down all the fucking... You know, because it was like a last minute thing and I haven't got it in my calendar and stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, so when I remember it, I will tell you because it's not like a secret thing. I'm sure they won't care. Yeah, okay. But yeah, so, and I was like, oh, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in, in making moments, essentially. Okay, sure. And it feels like, from what I've been told, that's what Glang is. Oh, yeah, like the Glang's going to fulfill what you want from it. Yeah, okay. that's what you're after, the Glang. The well, Glang is that distilled down. Well, where would you... Okay, would it be better to start with Glang or with your solo work on your own, from your perspective? Because I'm wondering which say, one came first and which one would be... I have to say, like, they've got this really intertwined story where... Um, so, I think the Glang show came first, but the Glang show wasn't very good. But the Glang... Because I've been working on the Glang show for about... First Clang shows in 2014. Right. But it was really bad. And I didn't do it again. For, no, the first Clang shows of 2013. Absolute, shockingly poor. But I did it again the following year. And then it was one of the best things I'd ever done. Right. So, okay. So, talk me about where, what the idea of it was in 2013. Yeah, sure. And what you changed. into. And did people come originally? Like, was it... Uh, so, I was already running gigs. But I was just mm. running gigs. And I was really... <laughs> like, so... Where my background comes from is all wrapped up in the fact that I was living in Sheffield. Mm -hmm. So, like, there is loads of pros and cons to being in a city that doesn't have, like, any kind of established comedy scene. Yeah, I can see that. There's, like, <laughs> there's real advantages and there's real disadvantages. And they've, they've very much have shaped what I've ended up becoming. And then I ended up... My solo work and the Glang show are really intertwined and they go in and out in a sort of a double helix pattern of chicken and egg stuff okay so should i start at the top with the first glang show and let's, sort of who i was and what was going on well, okay let's let's give a bit of history before so 2013 how long have you been performing for at that point uh so i graduated university in 2011 right and during university i founded a comedy society where we did sketch comedy and stand-up so there was no comedy society what uni were you at I was at University of Sheffield. Okay, and there, and again, there's no comedy. In there was Sheffield. an improv. Well, not no comedy in Sheffield, yeah. but there's no. There was an improv stuff. society. Okay, and so that became like the main funnel of anyone who's in the student body wanted to do comedy did that. But mm -hmm. I just had no improv didn't grab me in any way. I, I initially really wanted to do sketch, and in fact, um, that improv troupe they did a a, um, a student comedy festival, which was predominantly sketch. And I really liked that. And so I decided, well, there ought to be a society to do the rest. So I founded that. That's still going. They're going strong. And then when I graduated, I ended up becoming, because I was the president of the society for two years, and I had to learn how to produce shows. And then I thought, I'll start running my own shows. But I, I really wanted to do something like grand and different. But I had ambitions way beyond my ability because I didn't really know how to do that. So when you say different, if there's not... I mean, okay, let, let's paint a picture of the scene because you said there's no comedy in Sheffield. It's not that there's no comedy in Sheffield. I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you as someone who lives and gigs in London. Well, let's... Okay, no, no, because this is a global 
podcast. So, so yeah, you're right. Lot, okay, I'm a lot of people who listen benefit. to it. Yeah, I mean, okay, so Sheffield. Okay, I'll, so, I'll, so, so you're aware about twenty to twenty six percent of yeah. my listenership, depending on the episode, is from London. Mm-hmm. Um, then you can write off about thirty to thirty five percent because they're international. Yeah, and then the rest are all over the UK. So you're looking at quite a spread of other places, yeah, sort of about forty five percent of the country. Like it's not the country, but like are around the country. So. I'll give some context to what there is yeah. in Sheffield. Yeah. So Sheffield's comedy scene began in the 1980s, uh, started up in part by <laughs> um, Oliver Double, who now runs the Kent University Comedy Studio. I thought you were joking with me then. Okay, no, okay, cool, cool. I think he ran something called uh, the Red Grape Cabaret, which then later became Last Laugh. Yes. Last Laugh was uh, sort of riding on the wave of um, the emergent um, alternative comedy scene at the time that people like Victoria Wood and stuff came through there yeah. early on. And then Simon Evans, I think, also ran something at the Sheffield City Memorial Hall. Oliver then went away, and as as many might know, he now works as a comedy academic. Um, and that was all passed on to Toby Foster, who might be known to some through being in Phoenix Nights. And I think uh, then it became like bigger money and maybe a bit more conservative. I remember when I first started doing comedy, like within two years, like Toby Foster had written an article for Chortle saying, where are all the comedians in South Yorkshire? And I was thinking, oh, they're looking for stuff. And they put on a, they put on like a course thing or a workshop thing that people could sign up to, to try and encourage local talent. But then they cancelled it. And there wasn't, <laughs> that ta- talent scout ended. So it's like Sheffield has this kind of monolithic central comedy empire, because they're in all these big venues. And then there was like one or two other quite small independent nights. But then I probably wasn't as good as researching then as I was now. I'd imagine, let's say there's like a couple of others I didn't know about. But that's the lay of the land, really. You've got less than five independent nights and then one quite big monolithic empire, but that is quite explicitly admitting it doesn't know about the local talent in a press release. Uh, So there's not a lot of like wiggle room to learn so you really have to travel to your other cities in Manchester, York, yeah. Leeds. Which all have lovely scenes. Yeah, and yeah. M- but also much bigger scenes. Even York seemed to have a, a more together grassroots scene, despite, I think, being like a quite a smaller city. Mm. We've also got the Great Yorkshire Fringe. I mean, they've even got their own fringe. Not then, though. That was oh, So okay. that's David Hardcastle from... It's, a, it's an offshoot of um, Square Leicester Square. Square. Yeah, yeah. But they hadn't started that. This was long before that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Because yeah, because it's been around a few years now, but I didn't know if it was. Uh... I would reckon it's about four years in, give you, or take a year. Yeah. So twenty thirteen would have been just a year out of that. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's the context in which I was operating. So really, it's about like traveling over to open mics in other cities and having a night to yourself to do stuff in. Having a night to yourself to do stuff in, but also a real feeling that like <laughs> you're not welcomed or encouraged by comedians, uh, fifteen to twenty years your senior. Okay, I, as in like in the mainstream clubs or as in... Sort of generally, I think, because they're all sort of established. And also at the same time, I was trying to come out and do something very left of field and not really achieving it. Mm. And I think a lot of them probably were very patient with me at the time, but I was, I was 21. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I, if anyone's patience with me wasn't infinite, uh, I think they would be completely unfair and oppressive towards <laughs> me. Um, it's classic 21 year old oh yeah I was a 21 year old so like it's all coloured with my memories 
are the experiences through the lens of a 21-year-old boy. And so I really felt like, oh, I've got something to show the world. It's such a shame that it isn't coming across in anything I do or say, <laughs> or, but I know deep down there's something in there. Just for context for, for you, as a person who gigs in London, I felt like you've, you've over... I mean, maybe it's because of where you're from and because yeah. of the area. You think London is, you know, this... I don't know, creative Metropolis. hub of, yeah, sure. you know, whatever. I, you know, when I first started out, I had some comedians who were very supportive who were 15, 20 years my senior. Yeah, yeah. And then you had other ones who were very much like, okay, keep going. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and I'm not going to name names, but it's, it's one of those things where, I, as someone who is now sort of, as you, like the same as you, about eight or nine years in, you know, you sort of understand at some point you can help people, you can you can lead a horse to water, but you need to make them learn how to drink for themselves, you know? Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, am, I am giving that grace to say, like, I think at some points I just... I was doing I wasn't doing well on stage, <laughs> like on average. And I also think I had a longer period than most of really not clicking with what I wanted to do, and I found it very frustrating. So I, the, I, I, I'm completely understanding of some people may have just thought, what's this guy doing? There's no, there's not a lot of point encouraging him because I don't want him to do that anymore. Um, and that's reasonable. Um, I, And now that I'm a promoter and I'm not as, like, I am established in my area, I, of course, sort of understand my responsibilities to newer comics and... I have to work out whether or not blanket encouragement on everyone is like wise or even um, a responsible thing to do. <laughs> so, yeah, like the shoes on you, the foot now. But this isn't. <laughs> no. I'm not coming here to talk about who I now resent in hindsight and who now turned out to be reasonable. Oh, go on, this will go viral. <laughs> um, no, no, but I, but it, but it is important for painting a picture of your the context the context yeah. of okay so let's see, so how many gigs were you doing if, if you had to travel so far and i assume had a day job at the time still do yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so if you've got a day job you have to travel uh, here's the thing as well this is the thing i was thinking about and i was uh, i remember um i did an episode with someone from uh, down on the coast it does the, the south coast comedian award thing okay. and he was saying you know, when I, uh, you know, you see comedians in London, they say it takes me an hour to go from one end of London to the other, yeah. or I can get in a car and I can go to another gig and progress quicker because there's paid work outside. Yeah, sure. And I've I've done that before. I do. I tend to do runs of shows in the Midlands because yeah. I don't want to drive back and forth up and down the country all the time. Yeah. And so I'm I'm wondering whether you actually had to do much more travelling in time wise than I would have had to do. Not really, while we're comparing yeah. London to. <laughs> uh, you can drive. No, I don't drive. I'm reliant on public transport. Okay. But Manchester, Leeds, York, Derby, um, these are all like coach, train, mm -hmm. an hour away. So I wouldn't say... So how many gigs are you doing at this point? You've started out, oh, you're gosh, doing... How many gigs am I doing? Not that many. Probably like very hard for me to estimate. I think sometimes once every one or two weeks. Okay. It's not like a very full diary. And I ran my own night. So mainly I ran my own thing to try and get give myself more stage time. Okay. And what were you doing when you weren't doing well? In your own words, that's in your own words, I'm not trying to... Yeah. Um, I really wanted to be a little clever boy. I wanted to be a little clever Stuart Lee boy. And I really, I think there's this kind of, I really believed I was, no, it's not that I really believed I was really smart. I, it, was, it was really important to me that what I was trying to communicate is that I'm smart for some reason so it had to be intelligent comedy and I think that's something that I see loads of like student comics or like recent student comics make this mistake that they it's really that's part of their um, 
self-worth that they have intelligence and that, that needs to be communicated in some way so do you and think so, it's a student mentality because you were a student at that point so do you think it's like a student mentality I, do I just come out of university with a, yeah. with, um, a BA in philosophy so <laughs> yeah my personality was already completely screwed by that environment it's something I see because I've, I've been in student comedy environments a lot and I've still dropped into them now and again because actually student crowds can be really kind and supportive um, they're quite nice for doing friendly gigs. But there is something amongst student comics which is that they are trying to present a side of themselves which, I don't know, it's why like student sketch reviews are always leaning on like Victorian era sketches so that they can show off like four-syllabled words. It's just it's just sort of built into that. But it's just one of the tropes of that scene. I think every scene comes with um, its own tropes which aren't great because it comes off of people... Um, uh, just kind of hive minding together. So I I think I've heard you say before that you wanted to be a Stuart Lee, like yeah, yeah. impersonator. And as someone who once got reviewed as a skinny Stuart Lee, yeah, I can tell you now it is not a compliment. Like, no, uh, no. It, well, because to me I felt I felt like I wasn't developing my own voice. So I wonder whether you whether you had watched a lot of his stuff and you could feel that you were channeling. You know, like when you know, like when you first start, you have like a lot of your comic inspirations in you that are kind of coming out in different ways mm -hmm. did you notice that at the time and was it just or was it just you thought it's certainly like your favorite comedian then or is it like you thought i want to be like him do you know what it wasn't it wasn't even so much that it's that i had no interest in stand-up even when i was performing sketch comedy and i was around stand-up a lot i just had no immediate personal interest in it but then someone showed me Stuart lee and i'm like oh hang on it can be completely like I think that feeling of like, <laughs> there's an individual stage and they really need people to like them was very, um, it was one of the things I didn't really like about it. And therefore the fourth wall of sketch comedy allowed you to just present such absurd outlandish ideas and you're not looking directly at the audience. It felt a lot more, I don't know, just on a personal level, I liked that a lot more. And I guess the appeal of Stuart Lee, especially to a lot of young people, is that he sort of wrested that control back for the performer. And also I think I wanted to, like, I was interested in writing and and that kind of not very performed stand-up's quite good. That kind of, I'm just going to say, it's all in the words I'm saying, I'm not really going to give this a lot of oomph in how I present it. That appealed to me. So it was very hard for me to, like, move outside of that sphere. And also I'm from Birmingham as well, so when I, if I talk slowly and without emphasis, there's sort of an annoying... Uh, overlap in some parts of the accent so it was really so I was getting nowhere and when I was getting anywhere it felt really really derivative and so actually the Glang show ended up sort of coming off the back of that so um, the Glang show was I started ended up trying to go way more into this like well hey exuberant like ironic fast-paced slightly Tim and eric -y kind of vibe and the Glang show should I just go into explain yeah, yeah, what the Glang show is? okay this is 2013 yeah, it's, 20, yes. it's April 2013. Okay. Um, what date? No, I'm joking. <laughs> I find out. I don't know. That's right, that's right. And I had explicitly started running a series of nights which were just about experimenting. So I just needed... I didn't really know this at the time, but like it was that urge just to go into the lab and start messing with things until you find something interesting. It was just... Um, I knew what I was doing wasn't quite working and I wasn't really vibing right. Uh, and the Glang show was starting off as kind of a real reactionary rebellion against everything that I found really unwelcoming about the circuit at that time. And it was a deconstruction and reaction to gong shows, which is why it's called the Glang show. 
Um, so, so, sorry, can I jump in real yeah, quick? Yeah, go so, ahead. What was that? So, you know the little um, things that show you what the beers are on the back of the yeah. pumps? One of them's just fell off of its own accord, but then span around before coming to a gentle rest. It seems, I mean, it seems more comfortable there than it was where it was before. I'm way more comfortable yeah. there. Yeah. We'll, let, really we'll let it chill. Yeah, <laughs> that soothes my soul. Yeah, definitely. Um, but So, you said it was a reaction to everything you didn't like on the circuit. I'm guessing, and you can correct me if you want, at this point, as you're saying openly you weren't doing that well no not you, at all you weren't moving forward so, so it's the reaction against the open mic circuit you were doing not the, cl- the mainstream clubs because um, obviously it, there's a distinction yeah there of course it was a reaction to the, every, everywhere I was able to get to which was like <laughs> okay. like it couldn't have been a reaction to the big clubs because I've not <laughs> I've not even had that experience the only way to go into the big clubs was of course to do the gong shows your Frog and Bucket gong oh, yeah, show, your bucket, yeah. Comedy Store gong show, your Spiky Mike gong show. Yeah. These were your big ways in which you were lured in with this idea of progression, but the environment in which you're lured into is, oh, toxic as hell. Yeah. And so um, at the Glang show, rather than be one simple card that you can hold up and it would mean, please leave, there would be numerous cards. I made, there was like 13 coloured cards and they all had their own designated meaning, meaning that's really interesting. Could you expand on that? Or um, I actually, my father died from that, so I'd rather not hear about it, but it's not a criticism of what you're saying. It's just a personal problem. Um, and a number of those, and it was like a big legend on the back, what all the colours meant. And I booked in a random spread. I didn't want to book in like acts that I considered like I wanted to book in a mix of acts that I think would I knew would understand it and, and enjoy it acts that I wasn't sure and acts that I thought they're probably not going to enjoy this but I also sent out a big email to everyone going this is what it is don't come without reading this email mm. but of course the acts that I didn't think were going to enjoy it just didn't read the they confirmed mm. they said yeah got it I'll come and I thought, you've not read this. You did. You still do that because you sent me one a couple of days ago, which had like a whole load of stuff yeah. in it. And I replied, going, "Just about got it." it yeah, 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 yeah. I, yeah. So, and I've I've had a lot of back and forth onto how much people should know and what they shouldn't know. Sometimes it's sort of sometimes it's more enjoyable or funny to see people sort of work out what's going on. But I don't want anyone to have a bad time. I think I've become a lot more fair and reasonable as I've got older. I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to have any performers having a bad time. I don't want anyone to have a bad time. But yeah, so the first one, it was really interesting and it created some really interesting moments, but also created a lot of like fumbling of like, we're not sure how to make this funny and the act seemed quite nervous about it and the audience members couldn't remember what any of the colours meant. And one act, who the one who said, yeah, I got it, and then just came down without having read that it's like a novelty night, was really <laughs> angry. They couldn't just do their set. Um, and to me, I thought that's really funny. That's the that's the funniest part of the night. So the next year, I uh, blind booked everyone and gave them only a very, very, very vague idea of what the night was about. Um, so hang on. So, it's, so you've done one in twenty thirteen. Yeah, it's gone okay, but not as well as you hoped. It was just yeah, yeah. It was sort of a wobbly experiment. It seemed yeah. interesting. And and you specifically didn't do another one for another year because you were taken up by other things, or you or you thought you want to tweak it for a year. Why why did you wait so long? First, you got to have time away to really evaluate what was good and what was bad. Secondly, if you're going to do another version of a thing that didn't go so well straight afterwards, no one will come. So like, oh yeah, I gave some time to that. People were like, it was really advertised. Like this was like 
just trying stuff out. This was experimental explicitly. So it had like a nice little core of about 30-ish people who'd come along. So it was okay, but I didn't want to test their patience. No. So you, you thought they would come again and be annoyed, or did you think that those 30 are just not going to come? Again, when I, say it was, I'm, when I say it was wobbly, I don't mean like it was... It tanked. It just wasn't like a huge success. It was like people saw potential... And I thought they'd come again if I gave them a year <laughs> to brew on it. No, fair enough, fair enough. No, I'm, ju- I'm just, uh, when I do a preview, yeah. and it doesn't go amazingly well, I know it's different to a preview, but yeah. it's all I've got. So if, if I do a preview and it doesn't go well, yeah. you can almost see and feel them as they're leaving going, you are never going to, or at least you might, but in five years' time, you might come sure. see me. So my head was just thinking, where is your mentality at with that? Did it hurt because it hadn't gone well? So you thought, I just need some time. Like that, I'm just wondering where you okay, but there's one so fundamental- personalness was it, with it. There's one fundamental difference between you doing a preview and what I'm doing up in Sheffield, I think. Is there <laughs> only one? There's one that I'm going to bring up. And yeah, I was going to say. Let the rest go unsaid. Um, <laughs> is that I'm not performing to strangers who might vanish. I, through like my many years of performing in Sheffield, have built up people who broadly know what I'm about and will sort of give me a fair amount of the time of day because they've seen me a few times I'm not that guy trying out that weird thing I'm like oh it's Sean Sean's doing another one of his stupid things <laughs> you're saying it's a small enough scene and you were known enough on the scene that they're going to associate you with something that hadn't gone as well as you hoped I'd go more than that I'd say it's my scene <laughs> it's my scene I've made it and now I okay. reap the rewards of it um, and to a degree that's hyperbolic there is another um, promoter called Rich Milner who runs a thing called Square Hole Comedy and that's very good and I want to give him a shout out but beyond me and Rich who've worked together and have a really good relationship I would say that the comedy scene just there was another night called Abcom gets an honorary mention but it vanished really early into me performing and then um, everyone else sort of came into it because I started running I started running loads of open mics I ran like open drop-in like writing room things so it was just do you want to come have a beer and talk about comedy on a weekend uh, I did lots of stuff geared towards just creating a scene and of course I was right at the middle of it and I ran regular shows so it was this real sense of let's go see what Sean's doing if it tanks people's like oh that's a shame for Sean <laughs> do you know so what I mean as yeah. opposed to this guy's wasted our time bye so is this so is this your job at this point like promoting uh no, but I was earning some things through it, bits and bobs, but t- tiny, tiny amounts of regular cash. Right. No, I'm just, I'm just painting a picture of sure. what you're doing, why you're doing it, the motivations behind running gigs, and obviously having a gig on your street. I, you know, I'm not yeah. saying you have a. Well, by this time in 2014, I've gone from. So I ran uh, a night at a venue called the Harley, but then we came into Loggerheads because they really wanted to use the main room for serving burgers. And they said, can people come in for free if they just want burgers? And I said, I really don't think that will work because people could just say they just want to come in for burgers but then just watch the... It's it's an unpleasable thing. So that um, didn't work out. Then the second room I worked in was just a function room of like a bar that didn't really get busy until much later. But the owner of that bar had given an open promise to a brass band that they can rehearse upstairs whenever they wanted. So that wasn't a long-term plan. Although that one night where... Uh, everything was soundtracked to deafening umpa music was fun but it the novelty would not uh, last uh, then we got picked up by um an arts charity so we ended up in this black box studio above quite a nice nice pub area downstairs black box studio upstairs and the offices for the arts charity above that 
and we got a regular monthly uh, fee to cover all our overheads. And I ran showcase nights. I ran one semi-pro night, two open mic nights a month. And I would only draw a small amount of money if there was enough profits. Otherwise, everything just went on a set amount of overheads and go to artists. But then the head of that arts charity had a psychotic break and went into... Um, a f- I don't know if a fugue state is right. They 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 vanished, but their signature was needed on everything. So the pub started to fall into disrepair, but also no one could stop this direct debit for me running these nights, no matter what. So the pub's falling apart, but I'm still marching away doing the nights because w- w- the money's going to come in anyway. It may as well go on the nights. <laughs> um, but I thought, you know what? I don't need to do semi-pro nights. I'll keep the open mic nights as they are. But I'll just run these like big experiments every month and just cover the overheads with that. So we'd start putting on plays or we did this high concept show called Sean Morley's Lonely Show. We did something called uh, Murder on the Infowow Express, which was an immersive murder mystery. And it was an insane amount of work. I was just working part time at the time. And most of the time I was working on these big shows. And we were trying to get theatre critics to come a lot. Which actually, we got nominated for some of the best theatre shows in Sheffield some weeks. And we thought, we're just doing this in this, just this sort of 50-seater small room above a pub. But it's in such a state of disrepair. Sometimes we'd come in and they're like defrosting an entire refrigerator in the middle of the room. And we have to incorporate that into the show. That's like some mise-en-scene. So yeah, real strange time. And so the second Glang show was in the middle of that where I'm like, I'm just going to do whatever I like because <laughs> I'm not seeing any pushback to it. Um, and there are, there's a small crowd of being like, what the hell Sean up to? Let's see what this one's going to be. And so the second Glang show, I blind booked everyone. I had no idea what was going on. I really wanted um, it just to be... I really wanted to have not have that ability of curating who was performing. Um, and accordingly, like, I got a lot of weird people on and instead of the coloured cards everyone had a ripped up page of uh, David Hume's essay on suicide and if they held that aloft a klaxon would sound and then we said if you get the klaxon you're allowed to stand up and then you can express yourself in however you like Um, and also if you make a request that request has to be fulfilled and if you ask a question that question has to be answered and so the performers had to perform with that in mind I was sat to one side playing the piano and then on the other side of that was Bingo Corner where uh, do you know Al Greaves the promoter Al I Greaves I do yes yeah. he was sat with a text to speech synthesizer and whenever a number came out he'd do a bingo call and it would normally be like a random dada set of phrases and then the number repeated um, although I remember Al got really uh, nervous about that using a text-to-speech synthesizer, so I specifically got permission of Lee Ridley, Lost <laughs> Voice Guy, because I was worried it was going to be offensive to use that. And I thought I don't no. don't think he considers he's got like the USP on that, but I will I will ask out of yeah. our courtesy. And then we also got a jam salesperson in who was legitimately trying to sell jam at the show. Right. Like we got a vendor. Okay. Trying to sell luxury uh, vodka pr- fruit preserves. I mean, all good gigs have merch. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. The Glang jam. Well, actually, we did get them to make um, a Glang-flavoured jam. It contained ylang lang and Glangle, which is a kind of Asian ginger-alike root herb. Um, always contained mango. Mango ylang lang The problem is that ylang lang hasn't been tested on whether or not it um, you can eat it. Right. The, 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 the food department hasn't ever tested that so I've got I've still got the jam but I don't know if it's poisonous 
um, just says glang on it and it's in a I mean, that sounds very apt for the show at this yeah, point. I, you know? I bailed on giving it out to people because it could be yeah. poisonous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It keeps for ages, though. It's jam. Okay, so, so we're 2014 now. Oh, yeah. You've done Second Glang. Oh, yeah. Um, side question, just because these two things, as you said, are sort of helixing against each other. Yeah. Personal career for you. Yeah, tanked. <laughs> You're still tanking? Absolutely. Can I swear on this podcast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's fucked. Okay. <laughs> the, the problem is you've done that now, so it's like cashed it in a way. So now just yeah. swear what you want, but yeah. No, I'll yeah. just describe things as fucked. I won't go beyond that. Okay. It's just um, nice and emphatic. So you're still probably not enjoying stand-up, I presume? Uh, no, but at this point I have committed to go to the Fringe and <laughs> I'm doing both in, the Glang show. In 2014, show. sorry. Oh, it was this must have been in 2015 so 2014 career's not going amazingly well solo yeah, wise correct uh, you've oh, done in all respects okay, okay you've done the second glang that's been good a lot better it's How the you? best thing I've ever done at that point okay so this so all of a sudden that set off a something creatively in your head and yeah. you've gone this should go to Edinburgh yes but it was really I was still focused on my solo stuff. I thought my solo stuff was important. That the Glang show was this big, silly experiment on the side. Mm. But when I was actually there, my own solo stuff was awful. I was in a really bad venue. I was having a really bad time. But doing the Glang show, because it wasn't um, supposed to be my priority and it wasn't important, it was just having fun, the show was nuts. It was just people would come in, we'd just book up everyone and anyone. It wasn't important. Who the performers were was like, at the time, to our minds, not the main thing. The format was the main thing. And so um, it was just that you can get the, you can make the show do anything you wanted to do. The audience all could just hold up a thing, there'd be a noise, and you can go, why don't you just do this instead? And our big thing was call our bluff. See if there's anything you can say that we won't do. And no one successfully called. And almost vomited three times. One on Brown Sauce Thursday, the Brown Sauce themed show. Um, sometimes people would play The Floor is Lava. One time we found a guy from Falkirk. He used to be an opera singer. So we got uh, we melted uh, a Mars bar onto a plate and got him to hold that out to everyone while he sang Pirates of Penzance. Uh, one time we um, someone wanted to recreate something from um, Les Miserables. So... Uh, we piled all the um, chairs together into like a Bastille and then threw um, flyers at each other or, or something. Um, a lot of it was about there being no real distinction between performer and audience and there was just one big mad thing happening that we're all involved in. Uh, sometimes we moved all the show to the toilets. Yeah, we just sort of did whatever people wanted. And the best times were when people just, people just came back. We had people come back over five times because mm. they're like... It's not well. I'm not coming to see the same show, really. I'm just yeah. coming to see the same people. But what happens will be nothing like last time. Yeah. Um. And we, I really liked when who was performing and who was the audience didn't really seem like a meaningful distinction anymore. Someone came and they said the first thing they said right at the beginning of the show is, "Can the performers and audience all swap places?" And so all the audience just stood on the stage. And then all the performers were just in this vast, empty, non-lit area. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. They've got it. You understand completely. And then after that, uh, I was going to quit stand-up because uh, I, I hated it. As a solo performer. Yeah, fully. I just right. really... The Glang show made me feel really good, but I couldn't see that being anything or doing anything. I wasn't getting anywhere I wanted. And then I just started going, well, what if I just do the... What if I take what I've learned from the Glang show... And I applied it to my stand-up. And I went and did some really bad gigs. But I 
started um, pretending I wanted to shut the gigs down for well, for whatever reason. Can I, can I just ask, what did you want then? Did you know what you wanted? Because you said I wasn't getting what I wanted. So what did you want? Oh, I'd love for them to be laughing if people say, well done, Sean, or Oh, okay, so it was me. literally just any affirmation <laughs> at that point. <laughs> yeah, well, internally and externally, it's not like I was deluded and thought, this is all really good, uh, but they don't get it. I mean, that was to begin with. I think I was that kind of churlish uh, young man who was like, ah, I'm doing pearls before swine out here. <laughs> but then, I'm, you know, I have to realise, like, I'm... I'm having these ideas that have they're interesting but they're not funny it's not like it's not clicking it's not clicking for me either Some, you know how you have to test things out on stage while well, I'm still doing that I'm like oh that didn't quite work either and I'd have some I found that some of the good moments were when things were starting going wrong or I'm off script and so off the back of the Glang show which doesn't really have any script is that I would um just trying to create an event, a moment happening. And it all started off at like a gig I did in Chesterfield where it was just absolutely dreadful. So in response to that, I started saying I was the son of the mayor and this gig needs to be shut down. I went behind the bar and I didn't let anyone get served. And I just started um, just ranting. I I don't think I even stepped foot on the stage. and then that was just what I started doing. I just, I just would go to nights and I'd come up with a pretext to say the nights cancelled and I'd try and turn everything off and get people to leave and <laughs> get as many people to try and leave the venue as possible or or I'd physically take them outside. Um, and I kept... Because th- I kept thinking, I'm on my way out. You know, I'm on my way out of comedy. Wouldn't it be funny just to see and what can be possible in this space and then someone will go what you've done is absolutely completely unacceptable and I go fair enough I quit (laughs) (laughs) I really genuinely thought I was on my that was my swan song doing all of this but I just kept doing it and people like that's really funny do you want to do it here and then the next by the next year I was on the BBC New Comedy Award competition we interrupt this podcast to bring you an urgent news bulletin you're about to hear a mid-roll ad Or are you? I don't know. All I know is some advertisers for my show have started to ask for mid-roll ads, but these are added in post after I've done all the editing. So I don't know if you're about to hear an ad or not. As a result, I feel quite bad for interrupting the episode. So how about this? I'm going to quickly tell you about my Edinburgh show as an ad, so you at least get one ad, so this entire interruption wasn't entirely wasted. Okay? That's fair isn't it? I'm doing Edinburgh this year with a show called Every Room Becomes a Panic Room When You Overthink Enough. It's bloody great. It's comedy mixed with storytelling, mixed with improv, mixed with theatre elements. I love it. I really do. I'm really enjoying the process of putting this together. I'll be honest with you, it's very different to anything I've ever really done before, although it still has the comedic elements of a show. So uh, if you want to come check it out, please do. I'd really appreciate that. There's links in the show notes. Check them out. Now, on to the mid-roll advert. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Did you get a mid-roll at that time? Oh, you didn't get an ad. Oh, right, you know what that means, right? That basically means this podcast is completely free. I didn't get paid for it. If you didn't get an ad, I didn't get paid for it. As a result, how would you like to support this episode financially? You could do it by becoming a patron from $1 an episode. That's ATP. That's a freaking bargain. And you know what's even better is this middle bit and any ads are not on those episodes. So if you become a patron just from $1, you wouldn't have to listen to this right now. You'd be another three minutes into the episode. Wouldn't that be exciting? Check out the link in the show notes and see if you want to become a patron. There's loads of perks in there, not least of all, missing out on this crap in the middle. Let's get back to the episode. Right, okay, let's let's talk about that. So you entered that on the cusp of quitting. Yeah. Cause a lot of people enter competitions because they're they've got like a you know a five year plan or they're like, oh I need to get this to get an agent or I need to you know what I mean to be seen. You entered it. Hail Mary move? Like, what was the... Hail Mary move. Do you know what I mean? Well, no, because a Hail Mary is like, um, oh, either this or I quit. For me, That's what I it thought, sounds like. For me, I thought it. this is me quitting. Surely, <laughs> surely this isn't going to go anywhere. I'm just ranting. Like, I haven't, I have not, I've stopped writing things down. I'm not doing anything I'm supposed to. I have no full, clear idea of what I'm going to say or in what order before I go out. And I went and did the stands. I did that at all the stands. At one of them, I got in a lot of trouble, but the others, it went quite well. And at the Newcastle one went really well. And so I took the audio of that and I sent that to the BBC. As a joke to myself, imagine if the BBC let me go on and say, oh, I'm closing down the competition. Everyone's got to go home. This is unacceptable. And I was telling people off for laughing a lot. That was a big thing I was doing. I was, I was seeing it as disrespectful. And then I got onto that and uh, I got through my heat so I got through to the semis. I think I got knocked out then. Do you know why I got knocked out? Let me tell you. Here's a little nugget for you. So I've sat on this for ages, and I feel really ill at ease with it, but it took me a while to work out why it was. A big thing of the Glang Show and a lot of what I'm trying to do is, like I said before, I don't want that big distinction between performer and audience. I really think that I've got this discomfort with the performer being this big authoritative guy up here and everyone's got to sort of listen to it and if anyone, anyone talks or opens up their phone screen they're going to get like snapped at and so at this heat it was at the glee club in cardiff i invited someone onto the stage to for something or some bit i, I didn't even know why they were on stage i just thought it'd be funny if someone was up here and then they they went and they hid behind one of the banners which was a funny joke i'd invite them on stage but they'd kind of hidden again and they got a laugh i didn't snap at them or anything so i thought because I still think that kind of stuff's a bit churlish. But then I got told, because an audience member got a laugh and I wasn't able to regain my authority, that's why they couldn't, in good conscience, put me through to the next stage. 
That's weird. I got told that explicitly as a reason I get through, and I thought, wow, so I'd have to be this like ultra masculine guy who's like insecure <laughs> in order to get through. But, but surely they wouldn't have got a laugh if you hadn't have set up the environment that that would have been funny. Sure, if someone gets a laugh in a, in a comedy show, it's not the comedian. It's not my job to like invalidate it in some way. I think. Yeah. I, I love it. I think it's great. It shows that there's a nice atmosphere that people. Yeah. Yeah, I, f- I was really ill at ease with that. Yeah, like sometimes if I get like a heckle that's quite funny, I just go, mm-hmm, well, do- well mm. done. I won't like have a go at them because it's just, you know, unless it's like them being a dick, but then then most people won't be laughing this at it. This guy really. definitely was, and he, yeah, just, yeah. he just did a funny, stood behind a banner. I mean, it could well be that um, that was a polite way of finding a concrete reason to go, you just didn't make the cut, and that's yeah. fine as well. Um, it's not me going, oh, I ought to have, oh, I got pipped at the post by this final thing. But it's it's a, someone that's very senior to me said this to me as though it was something I ought to sort of understand and implicitly, like he didn't say it as like a controversial thing. This is, you failed on this parameter that I assume we both understand is a mistake. See, to, to me, and and I don't know how you took it, but I, I'd be interested if you, if you took that the same way I just did. Mm-hmm. To me, that sounds like we are looking for one type of comedy that will transfer to... BBC Radio, your type involves, you know, you won't have an audience when you're recording yours. You know what I mean? You won't yeah. be able to bring them up. So we, we, even if you're funny in that, we're not looking for that. So we have to get rid of you just because we can't have a winner that we can't transfer to radio. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. I re- so the next, I did it again the next year, 2016. Oh, they let you back. Okay, cool, cool. Oh yeah, I wasn't blacklisted or anything. Okay. Um, we still haven't got me on at all. <laughs> I, well, I assume my entry was crap. I never know what they're. Yeah, because people have asked me how I got on it, and I've really tried to help people with it, and they've not been accepted. And then I've listened to people who have been accepted, and, and I've continuously been shown that whatever understanding I thought I had about their criteria is uh, way off the mark. But also, I'm aware that I think it's it revolves what producer does it. So that criteria mm. is constantly shifting anyway. So there's not really possible to to know what the mm. uh, what the search criteria is. But the next year, I'd kind of learnt was just skipping ahead in my solo career I kind of learnt how to make that kind of stuff work and make it reliable and that was helped by the glang uh, what's the glang up to at this point so we're in tw- this 2015 now no this is 2016 2016 okay so here come semi-personal questions yeah uh, as, a, as a solo performer have you been booked for paid work at this point yeah okay after the first BBC competition so, like, I'm doing the Hail Mary end of 2014, going mm-hmm. around, like, loads of nights. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, I don't know how far into 2015 the BBC thing was, but suddenly it's a big thing on the CV, and I'm getting uh, more gigs and, and like, first bits of semi-regular paid work. Maybe not the first bits, but it's becoming regularised. Okay. It's not just this odd thing that goes, oh, wow, money and return to comedy, that's exciting. So It's uh, stuff that can now happen on a regular basis. And are they booking you, I'm going to turn a phrase here, but to shut down the gig? Or are they booking you to do the same? Like, what, what, what are they seeing in what you're doing when they're asking you to come and do it? Or is that not I don't really understand the question. Well, you're doing something that's largely improvised or largely, yeah. you know, sort of what one... one uh, thing that you want to do which is shut down the gig so yeah. I'm wondering if when they book you they're after you doing that or if they're after you coming down and doing like, have they heard your BBC thing is what I'm asking and are they predicting you're just going to be another comedian like because a lot of the, the BBC comedians 
are people doing material rather yeah, than yeah. trying to shut down the gig so I'm wondering if you know you they have seen what you do and are thinking that will work at our night or whether they've just seen BBC and gone oh we need to book people because the credit will look nice on our poster and it will help sell sure uh I have no, I have no clue, and also I never <laughs> wanted to ask because if they go, oh. "Are you okay with me doing the thing I do?" They go, "What do you mean?" <laughs> oh well, I, like it was always my intention to sneak in and then shut down the gig, whether they wanted me to or not. But, it, but if anyone told me not to do it, um, I never did it against uh, instruction. But no one ever told me not to do it because what are they booking me? F- no, I, I have no awareness of what the the truth is there. No, you can see my my question because a lot of the time promoters uh, you're a promoter as well so you're aware of this from the other side it's nice to put on you know credits from performers underneath their name and that can sometimes help and I was going to ask you about that a little bit whether that actually helps in Sheffield or whether your name the fact that you're putting on the night and you've built up a lot of trust with the audience out there oh no credits are still oh okay fine so that still helps out there oh yeah 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 because it credits help you bring in an external audience who You've got your own catchment of people you've managed to sort of build around yourself that right. they are interested in comedy, but then you've got people who are interested in, oh, such and such, who I know independently from their podcast, from their TV appearance, etc. Right. And they'll come, they'll combine with a few people that will come anyway, and then you've got a big gig. Right. So you need to sort of play both fields. Okay. Yeah, and so by 2015, that's when I actually sort of became good. I started doing this mad thing at the end of 2014. And in 2015, I started refining it. And then by the time that I got into the BBC New Comedy Awards, I knew how to play it and I knew sort of how to make it work on radio. But at the same time, the spectacle of like, it was so obvious I came out without... It's so obvious that I'm not scripted and it's not this planned out thing. Really energises a set when you're next to people who are ridiculously meticulously scripted because Mm. that is the intuitive response to going on a radio recording is Mm. I want to know the exact intonation of every syllable that's coming out of my mouth and mine is I very broadly know that I'm going to tell them not to laugh and then I'm going to try and shut down the gig Is it a character? Um, I think everyone performs comedy performs a character and people get a bit squeamish about referring to like themselves in this semi-third person way yeah writing for stage is always a character because you need to think in terms of the limited information the audience has but you're but you're not writing for you're imp- you're improvising it essentially oh but i point. so i'm wondering if you when you go on stage do you think i'm now in character or do you just go on and yeah i'm in character and it's not i don't want you to think that the realms of possibility are flung wide open <laughs> that's left solely to the glang show when i perform solo it's more than these days like a really detailed spread like flow diagram okay so so you've done the competition the bbc competition that's obviously yeah. had a pretty positive impact on your comedy career yeah have you done have you done any other competitions i don't think i've seen any I'm just wondering if any other competitions had a similar impact or if you... I mean, you've done the gongs and that's had an impact on the fact you've started the clang, so... Uh, I think I did uh, a Leicester Square one, but it didn't go so well. Um, Was that before you were good? No, it was after I was good. I think I just... I, I had flown in from Austria that morning and then gone straight to the gig and then went on first. Right. And I wouldn't say... Oh, therefore, you know, I, <laughs> whenever I mitigate a competition I didn't do well in, I've always got like a handy reason why I didn't win other than, um, you know what I'm saying, yeah. right? Yeah, we've all got that reason. Everyone's got a reason in their head. Yeah. But also, it doesn't always like, it's not always like the best thing on the night. It, does, it, it, it 
what I would say is that I don't die on stage anymore. A measure of success can be, you look at the peaks and the troughs. I don't tend mm. to tr- trough very hard because uh, I can just change what I'm doing. I'm not stuck in. I'm yeah. not stuck in. I mean, I have, I still can absolutely plummet. But uh, I'd say broadly, I'm a, I'm a competent and consummate performer. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing that appeals to me. And that's the thing that I struggle with and I want to do more of uh-huh. is in Edinburgh in particular. Yeah. I find you do it, let's say, 22 times in a row with yeah. maybe days off. And, you know, you, you, by the end of it, I didn't feel like I was in the moment. I didn't feel like I was enjoying it. I felt like I knew exactly the beats. I know exactly the routine. I know... You know, I'm just going to go round and round. Sure. And and then I just think, well, this isn't. Fu- this, I mean, it's a job. It's just not fun anymore, though. Yeah. It's just like, and also, I'm not giving them something enjoyable. I'm not. You know, we're not sharing a moment with their yeah. experience. Like, I'm. I'm. Fr- it's a bit like when advertising tells you how to feel. Do you know what I mean? Like, sure. I'm saying, fee- fee- feel humoured. Like, yeah. you know, enjoy that because I've spent time on it, and it's like that to me isn't the enjoying part the, like that's not the bit I enjoyed about starting in stand up the thing I enjoyed was trying an idea and knowing mm. the end punchline like because I, I knew what would hit the hardest and what would get me and then working out what would get me there yeah. and, I, and I suppose it sounds like you even you, you you have an end point to the whole show you do yeah so but you don't like in between those points anywhere's game or no, well so my premise. current show i apologize for my recent behavior so my previous show to that was called earned helplessness and it was like a series of Great vignettes title, by the way the earned helplessness one. i know genuinely much. i yeah. love puns like that in there because it's not a pun on your name it's a pun on the sort of yeah thing so, thank you very much yeah i think i've moved away from earned helplessness might have been my uh debut and uh, finale for my uh, pun titles because my show <laughs> that i'm working on now is called um uh, soon I will be dead and my bones will be free to wreak havoc upon this earth once more. See, that's... Okay, I got in trouble for this last year because my title was extremely long and they yeah. said you lose characters in the description Yeah. for the thing. Are you not... Is that yeah, not- so my description, I want to be really short. It's called um, uh, Sean Morley is like deeply afraid of the... Oh, I can't remember. It's something about like he's he's got um, a rattling prisoner inside him, and then it just says, "Free me from the enemy within." And then I don't want one quote, and that's it. <laughs> oh, okay, because so, I, I I I find that most people look at your image, yeah, look sure. at your title, and then sometimes read the description. I think if you've looked so, at my image and you've looked at the title and you haven't already got a clear indication of your level of uh, enthusiasm, then the blurb's not going to do anything. Well, okay, let's 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 go with that then. So, a lot of your imagery. And, yeah. I, and I don't know how to say this without it sounding insulting. I don't no, it's to. fine. I, I'm, I'm excited for what you're about to say. It's very... Uh, do you know when, like, Solitaire finishes? And it's sort and of like... it comes like, right at you. Thank but, you. You know what I mean? Or does it yeah. come from that? No, no, no. But, but you know, you know real, what I mean? I love when the cars are flying at you. Exactly. So yeah. it looks like that <laughs> for people who haven't seen it. It's basically like, say he's taken his face and he sort of copied and pasted it all over his other face. So it's kind of like... You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And, well, and I do because, yeah. I do you make it? You make your own posters. So this time I didn't. I have made. I make a lot of my own graphic design. So the Glang Show poster you'll see everywhere. I made that. I have, yeah. So, but I sometimes work with um, a man called Craig Allen, who uh, is just. Do you know what? I know him because he started coming to my nights. Yeah. So I come to my nights in two thousand and God knows when fourteen, and. Um, he came really regularly and he works in the video games industry he works on um, front end design for for video games so he's 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 got an eye for making interesting eye popping stuff but it, it isn't from your normal um, 
It's not from someone who makes graphic design for mm. for entertainment stuff normally. Yeah. So no. uh, very very capable of making very odd uh, left field stuff on my suggestions. Yeah. So so when you or when you were coming up with the original ideas for those what was your thought on your brand i mean did you think about branding did you just think that looks nice did you just play around with photoshop what what was because obviously it's it's so distinct mm -hmm. from other people who are basically just one face standing there in a pose and then you know maybe a backdrop of you know and i'm saying i was speaking to myself as well you know yeah, the, sure. the last two shows i've done have pretty much been me in a on a white background that they've then cropped out and then put me with like a background in it and yeah and so yours are very much i mean i'm looking at the glam one now it's sort of a bold color with sort of the sea of mist at the bottom of, you know yeah. like what, what were you thinking is 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 the mentality of that oh like an image it should be really striking i think you need to see an image in it you viscerally are are affected by it. So the Glang Show poster, remember, I'm really happy with it. It's the Glang Show imagery almost always includes um, crying babies, mm -hmm. um, and I've also decided um, on uh, smoke and triangles. Those are the main Glang images, and I think they will uh, appear in some form in all future Glang um, advertisements. And for myself, I really, uh, a lot of the stuff I do is about failure, about sort of messing up. And so I never want to be, I never want to make myself like look appealing or attractive. Because I think that's so, everything I do is like pushing against that idea of the comedian as this authoritative, desirable, charismatic person. I've always played someone on stage that's a bit, they're a bit uh, impatient and short tempered and aren't as good as they think they are and they can't quite achieve what they want to and they're quite frustrated and they're confused and things are out of their power it's just the antithesis of what you're told this person on the stage ought to be and so the poster designs are just an extension of that they should look they should look a bit horrid and, and morphed and all of them probably will have an element that you need to like look at it twice if you'd like to work out what's going on so i can tell you what the design of my upcoming poster is as well so it's uh it's me smiling like front on reasonably well lit but my head sort of like peeling like an orange and you know how you could like peel an orange and you could lift it up and it extends it, it, yeah. it shows those cracks underneath um and then underneath that's going to be me but i'm not smiling now i look really angry and quite terrifying but i'm i think i'm going to be like fully shaved i'm going to shave all the hair off my head and i want to be um i want my whole head to be like one matte color from anywhere from pitch black to like dark gray uh i'm not sure yet but that can be done in post yeah i was gonna say yeah I had a debate with this designer I'm thinking about working with because uh -huh. I wanted to be in a silhouette yeah. this year and they were like but no one will recognise you and I was like that's the part of that's yeah. what I like about it and they were like well, can we not just like um, trans transparency you know, like, can we not just make it transparent sure, yeah. rather than that and I went no because that's not that's not a silhouette <laughs> that, that's not a silhouette I mean yeah, I, get, was, I get what you're saying you've ever seen a silhouette like that yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I like the idea of it I played around yeah. with it in my photoshop but I was like no no I want, I want it to just be it's supposed to be so the, the show's about my own bones um, and skeletons generally and so I'm trying to represent my own skull but I think if I was bright white, that would not be as... So I want a bright yellow background, so I want it to contrast. Oh, makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you kind of, because you now know what you're doing, and you know what you think constitutes good... Yeah. It feels like that 
the the thought that you put into your tithes and the thought you're putting into your I'm going to call it branding. I don't know if you think of it like that, but I'm going to call it branding that you're sure. doing. It, it it kind of feels like you know what you're selling. Uh huh. So is it a case of now is or or you're approaching the point where you would start to try bigger venues? Try have you got an agent? You haven't got an agent, have you? No. Try for the record. He is nodding. No. Um, audio podcast. Oh uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, no, I do not. Um, but no, is it is it a case of because agents need to know what they're selling? Yeah. So they need to know you know what you're selling, and that's that's a repeated theme on this podcast where you have when I have someone on and they go, well, the reason I can't book X, Y, and Z is because I don't know what I'm selling there, and I or my my expertise sell this type of comedy. Yeah, sure. So I'm wondering whether you thought. An a, I don't know if you even want to name them, but you're like, I think these agents I'd work well with, or or even if you don't want that, like you're just like, no, I can carry I on as I do. I want an a. So I lived in Sheffield for a really long time, and I'm just talking about that generally because it's going to sort of affect this. I knew nothing about the infrastructure of the industry because agents aren't based up in Sheffield, so I had. I had one real advantage was I could start appearing in London. I got a bit of profile. People knew who I was and I had some credits and I had some nice reviews. So I could start gigging in London and like sort of circumvent the open mic scene and start doing nice stuff. And I, I've met loads of people here and it's, I can come down and do gigs. And then suddenly it's like this guy's appeared doing this utterly mad thing. No one knows where he's come from. And that was a really good strategy. This was a long-term strategy of mine of really work out what I'm doing and then just start appearing in London so that people are like, who's this idiot? What, who's told him to do this? And that's helped in that respect. But of course, the a lot of stuff about agents and bits of industry you pick up via osmosis being around in this environment, which I had to explicitly just stop people and ask and go, what is an agent? Who Who's an agent? What do I do? What's this? <laughs> and so for the last year and a bit or so, I've I've done it and I've found that my first forays were kind of people who've sat me down and gone, what exactly is it you do? And I go, brilliant. Let me tell you about the things that I do. And they've gone, I don't. (laughs) I don't really know what what we do with that. Could you do this instead? And I've gone, yes. And I've gone home and I've thought about it and then I've gone, actually, no, I can't do that. I'm only me. I'm sorry. I can only be myself. But then I've had like more positive encounters and people who sort of are getting it and are more encouraging and um, but I, I'm kind of bad for, um, I'm a bit of a control freak over what I do, and I never, when it comes to an agent, I kind of dallied quite a while, and so I think some people I've speaking to, that's not happening anymore, but that's like partially on me for not being decisive. And again, I'm repeating those, I wouldn't call them mistakes, I just call them a strategy that isn't providing any benefits. I've just not really being sure where to like seed part of my morley empire to other people um i know that feeling and i don't think you're alone in that feeling sure do you know like i think a lot of performers struggle to find the right agent mm-hmm. but it's uh, you know a lot of agents when i have them on here refer to it as a relationship yeah exactly know? and so when you look at it like that how long do you spend looking for a person to have a relationship with you know it's a lot of uh, yeah but i'm also a real slow decision maker as well that's just me, I think. Yeah, but when the right agent comes along, mate, and they'll... Oh, you just know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I am sort of becoming aware that my appeal has been rooted in... I've sort of come out of left field for most people. What I'm doing is really specific and unique. 
and so I really shouldn't start I need to worry on keeping that that's the train I'm on so I need to stay on that I need to just keep really having a good think about who I'm going to be next and what the next show is and how to keep people in fact no even that level of like that's me internalizing this idea of branding I just need to keep doing what I think is good and interesting and try and stay chipper about the whole thing do you think you have a following or an, or an audience of any kind yeah I do right I know I do okay for the glang or for you for both because I'm the glang show as well the glang show is an ensemble cast and it's but the, I don't think there's been anyone there's some people who've been very close to the glang show but the only consistent face is me I'm the host of the glang show I run the glang show um but also I'd like to give honourable mention to uh, Dan Nicholas, Sam Nicaresti and Ava Liversidge who have been a tremendous help amongst uh, many aspects of Glang Show planning um, for who might be listening and feeling wronged. You, you are treasured. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's talk about your audience then. Okay. How do you see your audience? Like what's your relationship with them? What's your relationship with social media? How you keep in touch with them? Because uh, a lot of what you do is so in the moment and so sure. in the room and stuff you put on social media is obviously naturally going to be in the past because it's it has to exist for them to find it so i'm just wondering what your relationship's like with that and and how you stay in touch and yeah it i i haven't been able to find a bridge between what i do in social media and what i do live because it's just it's not the same i've thought about like i know like people like limmy live stream i've not seen many comedians go into that live streaming world that's obviously a place where you can be instant and reactive but mm. i don't think it's an arena that i want to push into at the moment um i've made not many recently but i'm looking to rectify that like i've made little videos and stuff i made a tv pilot for a local tv station in 2016 uh called info wow 44 minute uh 44 minute episode filmed in a warehouse in Sheffield with a live band and it was this full like story live audience um, educational show that goes wrong once a lighting cab falls on and kills an audience member and then credit is taken for that by a malevolent being called the enemy um, great name yeah well the enemy also features in the glang show part of glang show lore is that there's this um a malevolent um, um, omnipotent malevolent force that uh, uh, hates the clang show <laughs> which has been something we've worked on the idea that like something bad can happen at a show is so funny to me the idea that it can all go wrong and now everything's destroyed mm. um, and leaning into the supernatural with that I've always found quite funny by the nature of what you're doing it doesn't feel like you want to do scripted stuff so I'm wondering whether scripted comedy, scripted TV, any of that kind of stuff appeals. By the sounds of it, you've dipped your toe in a little bit there, but... Yeah, I have. I find... Do you think there's a limited commercial viability for what you're doing because of the nature of what it is, is what I'm asking? No, I can make good stuff. It's just that I don't know how to get it... I genuinely believe something like the Glang Show or other similarly formatted stuff I've worked on can translate to other mediums, but I don't know how to get people to get on board with something when I can't tell them 100% start to end what's going to happen. But I know there are other shows that... Um, I think there's some stuff coming out of America where they have clearly 
gone in and filmed a bunch of stuff. I've done a lot of filming where we've got the broad strokes of what's going to happen, but it feels like it feels like it, like an info wow. We didn't write down all the lines of dialogue. We just made sure everyone knew what was supposed to happen in what order, and everyone knows what the cues are, because then the dialogue feels more real. Because if someone's confused, they are really confused. They don't know what's going on or when people are angry they don't always know exactly what to say so people stumbling over their words is is realistic it all i feel like it adds something to it and when people haven't fully rehearsed a line of dialogue automatically parts of their own personality bleed through so you haven't kind of got this mishmash of a, a character and someone's actual uh, mannerisms mm. i really like working with uh and in the glang show as well i really like to work with people that I don't really know or aren't even like necessarily um in the show tonight i've invited a 21 year old um electronics engineering student who's here in london on placement so he's not a performer i think he's performed some comedy in the past okay. yeah but thought it'd be funny to have him on yeah fair enough and it will be that's the thing i think if you build the format around yeah, yeah, yeah. people you can sort of have i like egality and i like getting people on that you wouldn't normally think to uh, cast. Here's here's my question then. If you like egality, because I I'm quite egalitarian in that way. Yeah. Do you feel like the work you put into the glang and the work you put into your solo work is getting the notoriety and the respect that it that you feel sort of is equal to what you're putting into it? I don't know. I don't f I don't feel entitled to anything. So. <laughs> so when I have no, anything, no, I'm really happy. Every performer feels a level of. You know, like, say you put on tonight and one person turned up. I'm sure you would feel like no, there's not a level that's of... That's the road to ruin. No, you, you... You're playing a fruit machine. You put amount of money in and a random thing happens. Yeah. And you can't get angry at cosmic justice that the fruit machine didn't pay out. I get what you're saying, but I'm asking as a, as a, as a sort of mean in the middle of your peaks and troughs. Yeah. Do you feel like the notoriety or the, or the, or the response or the reaction that you're getting now for the work that you put in is equal to what you would want it to be well i don't i don't know and i honestly genuinely try not to think in those terms because I, I i think that's that's the way that ruin lies if you start going i've put in x amount so i deserve this and i'll be sad if i don't get it well all right fast forward to you being really grumpy in the evening if it doesn't happen or like i have one mantra that i love above all never be confident just be excited I don't like know that. what's going to happen, but let's let's have let's see. I've had great times with almost no audiences. I I have no interest in. Um, I just want enough money to pay Yorkshire Water. That's my only. <laughs> if I can pay Yorkshire Water, I'm happy. And anything beyond that, I'll I'll squander. So I I'm not going to get to a point. Do you know what? I have enough ego to feel good about myself, and then I cap it there. I like who I am. I like what I do, and I like what I've manage to get out of it but if i start thinking if i try harder i've been going x many years therefore you've got to show me some bloody respect i feel like i'll turn into all the people at the, at the beginning of the podcast i didn't like i try to be welcoming to new people i should I, I like doing gigs that are below my own stature sometimes i talk to people and i feel like oh i'm not going to do these really bad gigs because <laughs> because I'm like in my 30s and I want to have a good life and I'm like wow the vanity I still like going and doing gigs that I don't think I'll go and do well in do you know what last night I um, accidentally went and performed uh, a set at 
uh, to the fetish community and I didn't know that's who it was I thought it was just a sex positive night but it turns out it was like fully to the fetish community and they weren't paying me very much I just did it on a whim and I was really scared but they were really nice I met um, an erotica author uh, she was very kind and I got £9 and it cost me £12 to get there and I came away happy it was a, it was a happy night I like living that lifestyle but if I'm if I think I deserve more than £9 for a fetish audience I'm not going to have these wonderful experiences completely completely agree yeah however I'm aware that there are people listening to this and there yeah. are and a member of the audience who are struggling to get a side job or struggling to get a part time job to cover yeah, the sure. £3 cost so I'm asking sort of the commercial viability question on the basis of just giving them a, 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 a better and, and everyone else want a better rounded view of how you can make the decisions that you're doing and it sounds like because of your limiting of your ego and because of your enjoyment of your life and your lifestyle the way that you're creating your career you're not money isn't your motivating factor I'm understanding what you're asking now. Do you know what I'm saying? And to yeah. the people who want to go and do something mad in left field, I don't want to say you can't earn any money. I do earn money from what I do now. I can, I can be really shrewd and I can book very selective gigs. And there's a degree to which if you do something a bit mad, uh, some promoters will always be sceptical of you. I've gone and done well at big clubs and people sort of talk to me like I've cheated or something. like Because, I don't know. But then some people are really welcoming of it and all you need to sort of do is... What people care about is you're not going to go and die on your ass, really. So if you can show that, yeah, I'm doing something mad, but look, it works regularly. Here it is working regularly. I think that's the most important thing is, like, first comes not dying and then comes smashing it, I think. Because it can be so much more helpful for you. And that's really one of the big watchwords for a promoter. I, I don't want this to have a, have a weird aura around if it doesn't quite work and then the night gets a bit sunken down. Um... And then everything else after that is administration and marketing yourself. So, so you can you can still follow that path. And also, if you've got a monopoly on a specific thing you're doing, uh, people will seek you out because they can't replace whatever it is you do. So what do you want to be better at? Can you reword that question? What skills don't you have at the moment that you're going to work on next? A lot of the skills I need to work on is like the... I've worked almost exclusively on the stage stuff and I'm really happy with what I do on stage but God, my ability to to um, do all the stuff behind that, I'm much, much better at it than I used to be. Like I'm much more confident at sending speculative emails and selling myself and actually writing positive things about myself without feeling nauseated. Um, it's, taken, it's taken a long time just not to have imposter syndrome or feel like I've cheated something. Um, so a, f a lot of it's just sort of working on myself and my own self-organization. There's a million and one things I need to do and I feel uh, constantly buried alive by them all. So uh, every year I felt like things have been going through the last year, but with any form of incremental success is, is an exponential growth in the sheer amount of admin. Mm. And also when you go and talk to like, when you go and talk to agents and producers and people who are knowledgeable in the nuts and bolts of the industry they'll ask you questions like what do you want what are you looking for with this what would you like to do if you were working with me and i have without a fail gone what i don't know what i don't know i don't know why i do the things i do i'm just compelled to do the things i'm unable to articulate what it is that's driving me or what i don't have any goals in three years 
I don't know what I'll be doing in three years. I don't know where I'll live. I don't know. I could be dead. And your bones will be... Oh, my God. Don't even start on the bones. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I feel like I'm driven by uh, impulse and instinct. Cool. Last quick fire questions. Sure. Um, a lot of comedians define themselves as comedians, and some of them would define themselves as writers because it's, you know, sort of the more of their earnings come from writing than yeah, comedian sure. stuff. How, uh, how would you define yourself, and how would your earnings define you? Gosh, that's a good question. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'd have to go with comedian and producer as the things that I get most of my cash from. I mean, I still, I'm not, like, fully professional either of those. I still do work, but part-time. Um, uh, so my earnings would call me a comedian and a producer, mm, but in what order? <laughs> Depends on the month, I think. Yeah. Um, because of course, a lot of the time I'm putting pop-up shows on, and I'm both. If I'm, do, I'm, I'm self-producing my own tour. I'm a c- c- comedy producer and comedian, uh, and I've done bits of bobs and other stuff, but that's mainly just I don't really get paid for it. I'm going to start making music videos, I think. <laughs> Cool. What is the biggest mistake you've ever made and how did you overcome it? Oh, boy. What's the biggest mistake I ever made? The number one thing in comedy that brings me shame and regret. doesn't have to be in comedy. I never said that. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm not talking about those. Um, I don't know. I've made loads of mistakes, but they've just been like pebbles on the beach. I can't think of like okay. a massive singular thing that I regret. I think I started. I think what I was talking about before when I started out and I was kind of prideful and churlish. Uh, I really wish I hadn't done that, and I had sort of fast tracked to being um, humble and puckish. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My personality now is oh so much better than mine when I left uni. <laughs> I'm really nice. I think that's the case for a lot of people. Yeah, you leave yeah, sure. uni and you realise, oh, it's not the bubble I thought I'd be living in. Um, what are the biggest misconceptions about what you do and what would you say to people who think them oh wow um, just because I don't know what I'm going to do necessarily blow by on stage doesn't mean I don't write it just means the the form that writing takes is just a, it's, different, it's just the difference between like liquid and gas <laughs> I do write but I don't write meticulously I just spend a long time thinking about things and I sort of have headings in my head but even with that said I I'm it's not just me I had a real time when I started doing what I'm doing now where I felt like the sheer arrogance that everyone's trying really hard and I'm not doing anything like I don't have any notes I don't know what I'm going to say I just know roughly some ideas and it took me a while to sort of calm down from that because it would make me so nervous and it made me feel like uh, if I do if I do badly um, like I really deserve it and I should go really badly because the sheer arrogance of what I'm doing but then I sort of realised well no I am writing and I'm trying as hard as other people it is just taking a very different turn and I, and I think I sit and I think for a really long time I just never commit anything to paper so it's not like the biggest thing was convincing people that I'm not a liability that I'm not going to like stink it up because if they think well, this guy's just going to come and do anything and hope for the best, what assurance do I have? If I've seen someone's ten minute set, I know what they're going to say. I can tell that some of these lines are funny, but it's not that. It's just um, I would make the counter argument that because I'm a, more of a flow chart, I can account for any any problems in a way that uh, a start to finish scripted monologue can't. 
can't achieve. Who is the most underrated person in the comedy industry? Barnaby J. Thompson. Why? Um, Barnaby J. Thompson is my idol and my muse. Um, that's one of many aliases they've used. Um, they've done more projects that are completely undiscoverable than uh, anyone I know. They're not only... Are you looking them up? You'll find uh, yeah. nothing. You'll find next to nothing. They've scrubbed the internet. They've had video series that have gone completely viral, scrubbed off the internet. They've done the most outlandish things you'll never hear about. Why? Why? Yeah, I'm why still we... trying to figure that out. Who, who is them. the real person? I won't tell you. They don't want that to be known. But Because um, Barnaby Thompson, according to this, is a singer, actor, dancer, and Dagger enthusiast. I've told you they've the scrubbed game. it. They've yeah. scrubbed it from the internet. No, but I would love to know if he took that person's name and then like sort of sent him a load of... Because this guy's in The Lion King, like the, the musical in the West End. I can't. It just it's one of the many layers of speculation you can apply to him. I can say he was very, very integral when uh, the Weirdos comedy group discovered him. He was very much an influence on some of those, um, and also he made. Do you know um, Tony Law on Ice? Yeah. He made maybe a majority of the costumes for that. So he's, he's become a puppet designer after retiring as a birthday breadman character, who'd come to uh, gigs. Uh, giving people um, chocolate on bread and screaming happy birthday and swearing a lot. Okay. Really, oh, top, it was really top You know what's going to annoy me is I'm now going to spend the entire evening after I've got off this show Googling that man to try and find out more about him. Good luck. I know. Um, okay, so what is the biggest problem in the comedy industry and how would you go about solving it? Oh, just the same institutionalised problems that plague the entire society. I mean, everything relies on... Uh, capital and investments and money which is inherently exploitative and then uh, the misogyny and racism in our society finds its way into the comedy circuit but it's embedded into the institutions of comedy rather than it being a problem of any key individual so even if you root out people that have done certain things wrong because they get cancelled on social media they'll be replaced by people from the same demographic who'll be just as bad I have one more question but I want to leave it on that because that's Great. <laughs> um, the last question was going to be if you had one bit of advice for yourself, if you could go back before your first gig, what would you tell yourself? Don't be confident, be excited. It's my favourite mantra. It's really good. Because don't be confident, be excited incorporates like... Excitement isn't about ego and it's not about assuming that you're anything about your own talents. It's about an, an eagerness to see what's coming up and an enthusiasm about the future. Awesome. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. No worries. That was Sean. Oh, I loved hearing about how he's waited to approach industry and hidden away in Sheffield to get better at his craft, both on stage and behind the scenes running clubs. I think so many of us are in such a hurry to get in front of industry and get signed and, and get pushed forward in into the bigger arenas and bigger areas of clubs and, and the circuit. And realistically, that's not where you're most creative. That's not where you learn a lot about the craft often. That's sometimes quite restricting, as you find from people in this podcast, because as soon as you're known for something, you kind of can't break out of that, and you have to really stick with it, and that can make it better, but that can also mean you miss out on a lot of opportunities to improve in other ways, and I think that's really exciting. I mean, we can all name a 
comedian we think's been picked up too early or someone we don't like and don't think's funny who's been named but this is slightly different this is someone who has actively avoided industry because they didn't know how it worked and because they wanted to get better before they even thought about that and that's really admirable and exciting to hear because it's completely the opposite to what we mainly get told uh, his take on gong shows and running the anti-gong show and its cult-like status that has come through is really exciting uh, we, we had James Ross on the last episode and I'm really excited to talk to cult leaders if you like in the comedy industry who have really started to build up their own little following and their own die-hard fan base of something that's different because we all want something different in this don't we we don't want to see the same bloody thing over and over again what's the point in that there's no joy in that there's no entertainment in that there's no com- well there's commercial viability in it sometimes but there's no creativity in that we've got to stand by this and we've got we've got to really work hard to find something unique and interesting and i think once you do you really want to grab hold of it and develop it as how, however you can I've, I've done the glang I, I did it when it was in london at objectively funny at the albany and i, I can say about a shadow of a doubt i learned loads about myself my act being in the room performing for that audience and not just whatever audience came in which was like i said before exactly the kind of thing i'm trying to do with my current show and i can't thank him enough for giving me the opportunity to play around with that in a such a different format and and medium oh, it was so much fun if you if you can go and check out the glang show i reckon you should definitely do that especially in sheffield or london as i just said if you want to check out other episodes like this you can check out the one with james ross who started the indie cult night quantum leopard in london or adam larter who started the cult collective group called the weirdos again also in london it feels like feels like a lot of the cults come out of london but it's actually just i live there and so it's easier for me to entertain an interview there uh yes i I hope you enjoy all those episodes if you'd like to thank either me or sean there is a link in the show notes to both our twitter feeds check us a thank you really means a lot honestly this podcast took about nine hours to edit and put together so if you want to say thank you and you don't have money that's the best way of doing it if you do have money boy do i have some options for you you can give me a donation as a one-off via paypal uh or you can do it as a patron you can do it for one dollar an episode is this worth 80p bloody is worth 80p i tell you that now because what you just said if you're saying it's not worth 80p you're saying that my hourly rate should be less than 12p an hour based on how long it took me to edit and put this together and that is just insulting so um it's definitely worth it but if you can't afford it don't donate if you can afford it i would bloody appreciate it because i really want to get those donations up so i have a budget to keep this show going and it allows me to really invest more time and energy into it so please do that not only not only supporting an independent podcast producer and keeping this show as independent as it possibly can be you're also getting episodes without ads in how exciting is that yeah i know no ads that's the dream isn't it so please look into that if you can't afford to donate that's absolutely fine just hit the subscribe button if you're new and if you're old leave us a review on itunes it takes less than a minute and they really help out the rc industry podcast is a fruit that got in gravity's way production for the internet all elements were created by me comedian simon kane thank you very much for listening thank you very much for subscribing and thank you very much for rating and donating if you do i'll see you all in about 14 days time bye even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. warbyparker.com slash covered.